Hi there, Grace Point. My name is Andrew, one of the church family here, and it's my joy and privilege to open God's Word this morning. Um, I really want to echo Chong's welcome to you this morning. It's, I really want to say with my heart, it's so wonderful having you here. Whether you feel like church is home for you, welcome. Whether you feel like you've never been in a church before and it's the craziest place, I get it. Church is kind of crazy, isn't it? People sing, they sit, they stand, they sit, they stand, they speak, they be quiet. To the same place, thank you for being brave and joining our church this morning. I really want to welcome you to church this morning. Uh, each week at Grace Point, we read through the Bible in order, working through it step by step as the story and logic unfolds. And we've seen so far in Romans that there in Jesus, there is good news. He makes right the wrongs of the world. But to see the really good news of Jesus, Paul, the writer of this letter, has been spelling out the bad news for humanity, for all of us. He wants to show us how dark the night sky is so that the stars might shine brighter. And the question I want to ask today is, do you think people are intrinsically good or bad? Are humans at their core naturally good or at their core naturally bad? What do you think? We hear stories of amazing people who sacrifice for other people. Uh, Just the other day, Abigail showed me a video on, on Facebook, I think, where a teacher gave her kidney for her student in the second grade. Oh, man. Faith in humanity restored. But... We also sadly know that when we open our newspapers, for every heartwarming story we might hear, there's a life taken, a person taken advantage of, injustice prevailing. Man, what a downer. Or perhaps you might think that people are intrinsically at their core, they're they're good, but it's the system they grow up in. That's the problem. It's the faceless capitalistic society that doesn't see people as people but as dollars and so they happily climb their mountain of bodies maybe that's the problem perhaps you might see it in the simplest of ways as we look at children they're so pure and wonderful so much bundles of fun right or some of us in the room might have a different observation gosh i didn't even have to teach them to lie before it came out of their lips What happened there? The question is, do you think people at their core are intrinsically good or intrinsically bad? Who are we at our core? And the Bible passage we've read today answers that question. Uh, We've considered who we are at our core from our point of view. The Bible engages with this from God's point of view. What does God say about the matter? And Are there consequences for how God sees it? Uh, In your bulletins that you received as you came inside, there's an outline that will help you uh, follow along on the way in or on your phones online. That will help you follow along. We'll consider first what it looks like for the religious, the Jew. What it looks like for the rebel, the Gentile. And finally, the realization that's so essential the realization that our whole conversation relies upon in the very last two verses. Keep your Bibles and your outlines open. That will help you to follow along. But first, please pray with me as I ask for God for his help in understanding what his word says. Please pray with me. 
Dear God, thank you that you speak to us in your word. Would you help us to understand it and so to see you more clearly? Would it not just be knowledge, but would it move our hearts to love you more dearly? Would you show us Jesus so he might feel you more nearly? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes we come to the Bible asking primarily, what does the Bible say to me first? But we actually forget often that it was written to real-life people in the past before us. And the people that Paul is engaging with here first are the Jews, the religious people of the Old Testament, the original people of God. And this passage flows on from last week's passage. The Jews, they felt safe because they were the people of God, but they were not safe before God because of their disobedience. And so this section in Romans 3 has four questions that Paul is engaging with, and they're all tightly linked in their logic. Question 1, verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what what value is there in circumcision? Reasonable question, when they're the people of God. But when they're the people of God who are not safe with God, what's the point of being a Jew then if we're not safe? Very reasonable. And Paul answers it in verse 2. Much in every way, he says, first of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. They were a privileged people. Imagine if the headline of the newspaper one day said, God is coming to speak, 11 a.m. in the city. And you assume that it's legit. People would flock to the city at 11 a.m. to hear God speak. It would be packed, wouldn't it? That's points That's Paul's point to Israel. Israel, you've gotten to hear God's word for ages. And more than that, you've got to witness what God has done. God had saved Israel from slavery, provided for them, brought them into a land of their own, made them into a nation from nothing. They were in a deep and committed relationship with God. What a privilege. And Israel took great pride in who they were as the people of God. But note, It's not just about membership that's important in God's eyes, being Israel, but it's about obedience. Let me explain. Imagine this. Imagine you asked me, Andrew, are you fit? And imagine if I said to you, yes, I've got a gym membership. But then imagine if I didn't actually go to the gym. Well, it would be ridiculous for me to say, yeah, I'm fit. Instead, you should ask me, Bro, do you lift though? That's what you should ask me. Who cares if you've got a gym membership if you don't do anything with it? Israel are God's people. They have a membership, but they don't obey him. And that's the tension points that leads us right to our very next question. Question two, verse three. What if some of them were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Yeah, they're Israel. They've got the the membership, but they don't act like how Israel is meant to act. They don't obey. They aren't faithful to the words that they've received. And their relationship with God, remember, is a relationship. And we all know that relationships go two ways. One party commits themselves to doing something. The other party commits themselves to to doing something. And if one party doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, well, 
The question is, will the other party also give up on their end? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And that's a, there's a really good news for them in the way that Paul answers them in verse 4. Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. See, what we're seeing here is in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, where God has every right to break off his end of the bargain of caring, providing, and loving them, God does not. Because when God promises something, he does it. God is true even when humans lie, is Paul's points. Even though Israel promised themselves to God alone, they lied. They left, they worshipped other gods, they didn't treat him, they didn't treat each other, they didn't treat other people as they should have. Yet, God in his kindness remains faithfully committed to his people, holding up his end of the bargain, even when his people do not. But God being true, God being faithful, it also means God having to be fair, to be just when he responds to them, when he rightfully judges them for what they've done. And that's why Paul brings up that quotation from King David from Israel to back up his point in verse 4. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul's point here is that when God speaks, when he judges, he judges truthfully and fairly. When people rebel against God, not holding up their end of the bargain, God keeps on being faithful in the midst of the evil of his people. God, in the midst of their judgment, is seen even more wonderfully, even more faithfully to them. Which flows into the next question of question 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The question is, well, if I, when I do wrong, when I act unrighteously, if that shows God to be more true, more righteous, isn't that a good thing for God? Haven't I actually done God a favor in making him look better, is what Israel might ask. And if you and I stop and think about it, you might realize... That's a crazy argument. Imagine for a second, someone lights a building on fire. Imagine that. Someone lights a building on fire. And when they get to the police station, they're asked, so, why did you do it? And imagine they reply, well, I did it because I wanted to make the firefighter look, like a, like, like look good. I wanted to show how heroic she was when she pulled children out of the burning flames. It's a great action shot for the headlines. I wanted to make the team look brave as they put out the fire. Actually, why am I even in these chains? I've done a good service here. I've made them look good. I've done nothing wrong here. And the police officer would look at them and say, You're insane. Both are true. You did make the firefighter look like a hero, but you're also an arsonist and you're going to jail. They're both true. For the Israelites, you have been unrighteous, you have been unfaithful, you have been a liar. And that has shown that God is righteous, that God is faithful, that God is true. They propose crazy ideas like, let us do evil so that good may 
results. What should God do? He should judge them for their evil because that's only fair and only right. And that's what we would want too, right? None of us, I think, would want the arsonists to go free, right? Their condemnation is just, Paul says. So Paul actually circles back around and asks the main question. If the religious, the Jews, God's own people have been faithfully entrusted with the very words of God, the very words of God that they receive, they were not faithful to those words, then what? Is there any advantage at all? Israel has had the wonderful advantage in verse 1 of having the very words of God, the wonderful intimate relationship with God, and Paul says, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. They've had this wonderful intimate relationship with God, but the people of God, the religious, the Jews, they were completely unfaithful. And for functionally, they have no advantage because they haven't, they've had the gym membership, but they did not lift. They had the words of God, but they did not obey. And this passage continues and explains why they didn't obey. It says, because they were under the power of sin. They could not and would not live rightly towards God. They could not lift the bar that they were meant to carry for sin pressed down more than they could bear. And the horrible news for the religious, for the Jew, is that all they had as the Old Testament chosen people of God, for all the very words of God you had, you did not obey, and so you were just like everyone else. As religious as you might seem, you act just like the rebels of the world, like Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. The Jew is under the power of sin. The Gentile is under the power of sin. The religious, the rebel, all weighed down. And this idea is at the very heart of our passage today, the very key element in answering the question we asked at the beginning. The Bible talks about an inherent disposition within all people, the disposition to move away from God, who gives us all good. And so what are we left with? Deprived of his inherent goodness. The Bible calls this movement sin. And its power is felt on all people, even us. It means that at our very core, we are not good. And you might be surprised and confused at this moment. Uh, sin... Uh, Andrew, that, that's a really strong word. I, I haven't murdered anyone. I, I haven't raped anyone. In fact, I, I've done good, Andrew. You don't, you don't know the sacrifices that I've made for my family. Uh, you don't know the line of work that I do and how I help people. You don't know who I am and what I've done. And I'd say to you, you're right. I, I don't know any of those things. But what I, what I do know is that Relating to God based on what we do is religion. It's what the Jews are doing. They think that because of what I do, God will see me better or worse. And if I'm honest with myself, I know I have not treated God as I should. I have not treated others as I should. And I have not treated myself as I should. 
And I don't do it once, I do it again and again and again. In fact, it becomes habitual in my life. I keep tending towards that regardless of the good that I do. You might resonate with me. For all of my religiosity, for all of our good work, if it is not perfect, if it is not fully faithful to God, it's for nothing. If I said to you today, I have been a faithful husband to Abigail. Oh, except that one night where if it's not fully perfect, if we're not fully faithful to God, in the eyes of God, we fall short of his standard. Even the religious who outwardly look good and do good before the eyes of God, they are rebels. Sin is the great leveler of all people. Religious rebel, all under the power of sin before God, me and you. I know this is heavy and it sounds harsh, but I speak to myself just as much as I speak to you. And I promise you that good news is coming, that we will not feel the good news and all of its goodness unless we realize the pits that we are all in. The darker the night sky, the brighter the stars shine. We'll see some of that good news this week, even more fully next week. For now, let's turn our gaze to the rebel. This is part two on your outlines. This will be a shorter section. Paul has leveled the playing ground between the religious and the rebel, the Jew and the non-Jew Gentiles. And in verse 10 to 18, Paul is giving evidence of his accusations against the religious. It's sort of like a collection of the greatest hits of the Old Testament, except it's the opposite. It's more like um, a wall of shame put up by their own people. The very words of God that God had given them stands against them now, testifying against them. And don't forget, the non-Jews in the Church of Rome, they would have heard this and seen their own sin in this list too. And I think we see it as well. We see sin against God, sin in their mouths, and sin against each other. Verse 11 and 12 starts, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is not, no one who does good, not even one. When it comes to God, the indictment is clear. No one seeks God. We don't think him valuable enough to go after. No one is righteous. We don't act rightly towards him. No one understands. We don't think of him as we should. And it's quite clear, Paul is condemning everyone, no one, not even one. The Jew, the Gentile, the religious, the rebel, me, you, every single person in this room, the whole world, no one treats God as we should. And Paul takes a closer look, he examines He looks at our mouths and finds sin there too. Their their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths. For the Jew, this would have been depressingly ironic. They have the very words of God of life, but they only speak words of death. And we are not exempt from this either. 
Or maybe I'm the only one here. I know that I've said things I regret. Words that damage and hurt people. Words that are said against my parents. Words that are said against people behind their back. And I think all of us sort of know how damaging our words are, don't we? One of the dumbest proverbs that people say is, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know who that person is speaking to, but it's definitely not me. There are words that I've heard that have kept me up at nights, scarred far deeper than sticks might. We speak words of death, deceitfully tear down walls of trust. Poisonously, we strike hearts, bitterly brooding. We curse the very ones around us. Our sin is destructive. We don't treat each other very well, do we? He says in verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they don't know. It doesn't just stay upon their lips, but it comes to our hands. It spurs on our feet towards it. You and I might think we read this, we might think that we're better than the primal act of shedding blood that's presented here. But I do know teams that I have disrupted the peace. I know where there are people where I have brought misery rather than joy. I know relationships which I have marked with my passive aggressiveness, where that's become a habit so that I level the playing field to get back. If I'm honest with myself, I don't treat others well. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't treat others well, do we? And Paul circles back around, presenting the root cause of it all in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible presents at the core of all our fallouts is a central relational fallout with God. Because the Bible presents, in its big picture, a picture far more beautiful and wonderful for humanity. It's a picture of humans being made by God, being in relationships with God, and the goodness that we enjoy in our relationship with Him is sort of like a champagne tower. He pours out His love to us, and it trickles down and gives life to our relationships. It springs forth in love and grace towards each other. It produces words of warmth and goodness to each other. But it's, at its core, presents a central relationship with each one of us and God. The religious, the rebel, you and I, we are made to be in relationship with God. And when that falls out, when we do not cling to Him as we should, when there is no fear of God before our eyes, the champagne tower shatters. All other relationships fall out of line too. And the question is, gosh, Andrew, Paul, that's a huge indictment. That's something that weighs on me and hangs on me. What do we do with the fact that we're all under the power of sin? What do we do? Well, David in Psalm 51, that Paul quoted earlier, that, that Libby read earlier, it actually models the right response to God when his people mess up. David has just made the biggest mess up of his life. David sleeps with another man's woman, Bathsheba. And to cover up for what he's done, he pulls some strings as the king and sends her husband to the front line of war where he gets killed by the enemy. Uh-oh, it's not me that's done it. Enemies killed them. That is an 
atrocity, isn't it? There's no coming back from that one, King David. You've slept with another man's wife and you've killed the husband too. What will David do? And his very first words in Psalm 51 show something very telling. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David realizes that when it comes with him and God, he is bankrupt with a debt he cannot pay. In those moments, you don't say to the bank, Give me a second. I'll go work off my billion debt, billion dollar debt that I owe. Let me go work it off. No, no, no. You can't pay for it. And so the only reasonable thing to do is to ask the bank for a write-off, a, a pardon. You ask for mercy to wipe the slate clean again. When it comes to God, we have a debt of unfaithfulness we cannot pay. A wall of shame that testifies against us and proves that we are, in fact, guilty, that we do indeed have a debt we cannot pay. When it comes to God, you and I are bankrupt. And this is the realization that our final section takes us to. Point three on your outlines, the realization. Now, this is verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's what Paul is saying here. Before God, in the courtroom, you have no defense. The law originally was spoken to those under the law, is what it says. Uh, these people under the law are the Jews who had the words of God. And you and I have already seen how they have lived. They have been unfaithful for they were under the power of sin. And the point is here from Paul is that if you and I had the same words of God like they did, the same relationship of God that they did, we would have done just the same thing as they would have. We would have failed too. Paul engages in a legal metaphor. The ones who are on trial, the entire world. The claims against us, staggering, obvious, undeniable. What can we say? Nothing. Every mouth is silenced before God based on what we have done. There is only one reasonable verdict to give. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. No matter if you're religious or if you're a rebel, You cannot be righteous in God's sight. You cannot be right with God relationally by what you do. His law is perfect and good, but we are under the power of sin. We cannot obey it. Through God's law, through God's word, we realize instead all the ways that we fall short, all the ways that our sin takes its devious form. Last week, Cam took us to the story of the Titanic, where it's so easy to feel safe. You know what? We're the unsinkable ship. We don't need that many lifeboats. We're unsinkable before quickly realizing that it is so easy to feel safe without actually being safe. 
It's such an obvious picture of the life of the rebel under the power of sin. When your life is in chaos, when your relationships are busted, you know that you need to come to God for help. You can only come before the judge and plead for mercy for a pardon so that you might not just feel safe, but be safe with God. When you're in the ice-cold waters outside the Titanic, you know you need help. That might be you today. And to begin following Jesus today, who has paid the debt of those who trust him, so that in Jesus you might actually be safe. But there's another ship I want to tell you about today that is less obviously in danger as the Titanic, but is in danger nonetheless. This is the USS Jeanette. She set out for the North Pole in 1879. The only problem was she had a wrong map, a false map. So they set sail, and they quickly ran into ice. And for 21 months, they were caught in the ice. And over time, they were slowly being crushed until eventually ship gives way. And the crew that got out, every single one of them, died on the ice. I tell you this to show that there is more than one way to make a shipwreck. One is dramatic and obvious. The other is insidious and it crushes slowly. If the rebel is a Titanic, the religious person is the USS Jeanette. Because if you're a religious person, you think that you're safe, but the reality is that you're slowly being crushed alive. You think you've got a map to the North Pole, but it's false. Religion does not lead the way. Instead, religion is slow and crushing. Your very best works, your very best attempts, your very best moments do not pronounce you righteous before God. For no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. You live a life thinking you're pleasing God, but you're slowly being crushed. You're being misled. The reality from this passage is that every person is under the power of sin, meaning that every person, you and I, are drowning. And so often we don't even know it. You know what would be a crazy thing to do if you're drowning? Imagine if you were drowning and you stopped yourself and thought, man, at least I'm not like that person over there. At least I'm not in jail. At least I'm not a criminal. That would be an insane thing to think about. That's like asking for a medal for being the least drowning person. Do you want a medal for that? You're missing the point. You're going to die with your medal, man. It's going to drag you further down. When you're drowning, you need help. You don't need to swim harder. You've already been doing that. When you're drowning, you need help from the outside, from someone else. When it comes to God, asking for help starts with echoing the very words of David. Have mercy on me, God. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I am drowning. I need help. I need you. But the good news of the gospel, I told you we'll get that, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there is not just two boats, there is a third boat. Not just the shipwrecks of the Titanic and the USS Jeanette, Jesus is a lifeboat 
to those who ask for help. He has paid the debt against God that we could not pay. He has risen to life to prove that he really can save the drowning. He has even greater power than the power of sin that is upon us. He can lift the bar. Whether you are the religious or the rebel, whether you are quickly drowning or slowly drowning, the only way is Jesus. If that's you, we'll we'll pray in just a second. That would be wonderful to do so. If you're a Christian in the room, my encouragement from the passage is that it's very easy to live just like the Jews we've read about today, to read this and live this religiously. Oh, now that Jesus has paid it all for me and saved me by grace, you know what, Jesus? I'll take it from here. I don't know about you, but I do that all the time. And I realize it comes out when I begin to think and to feel that God loves me less when I sin. Or that I believe that God loves me more when I serve or do good. When I begin to think like that, I realize that that's a religious way of seeing Jesus. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you're safe. There is nothing you can do to make him love you more. There is nothing you can do to make him love you less. He is firm and secure. Remember, as we looked earlier, when Israel was faithless, God was faithful. When we are faithless, God is faithful. Another way that I notice my religiosity rears its ugly head is in the way that I see others. When I begin to size myself up and compare myself to others, when I begin to think whether I'm better or worse than this other person, actually what I've done is that I've begun to forget that we are all under the power of sin, that before God we are all in equal, desperate need. I've forgotten the great leveler. I've begun to believe that that person's drowning, I'm not. Or that I'm drowning and that other person is surely not. They're so good. Either way, I've forgotten that we're both drowning. Whether you're religious or the rebel, we're invited to trust in the greater power of Jesus and be saved. And to close, here's the good news of the gospel. In other words, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. We've seen that today in our passage. But there's something else. I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. Jeez, I'm worse than my wildest imagination. I'm more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. Man, God's really got me. God really loves me. These are words said a while ago by a man who died two days ago, the late Tim Keller. He's a man who believes that he was drowning because of sin. And so he put his trust in Jesus, the one who has power over sin. And so even though now he is in the jaws of death, God embraces him in life forevermore. I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. I'm more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope. We're going to respond to God now by praying. If you wanted to take God up on his offer of seeing what it's like to actually cry out for mercy and seeing God save and rescue and love you, 
I'll pray a line and I'll give you a bit of space to pray it in your own heart. How about we pray together? Father God, we know that no work of ours can make us righteous in your eyes. We know that we have not treated you, other people, or even ourselves as we should. We are sorry, and so we ask for your mercy. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die to pay our debt. Thank you that he's risen again to give us life. We thank you that there is nothing we can do to make you love us more or love us less. Help us to live with you with our all. Amen.